Welcome to a sermon podcast from the Unitarian Church of Los Alamos, New Mexico. Whoever you are, wherever you are on your life's journey, you are welcome here. This sermon is entitled, Closer Than the Jugular Vein, and was delivered by Rev. Wade Wheelock on July 24, 2016. Allah. Here's a word for that most in our society strikes a definite note of the exotic, the distant, even the terrifying. Terrifying not for theological reasons, but for the misfortunate association of some of Allah's worshippers with gun-toting terrorists. Allah in the Arabic language simply means the God. The God, Allah. Just keeping that fact in mind helps dissipate some of the mysterious myths surrounding this religion of some 1.6 billion adherents, second in headcount to Christianity, with the Christians doing the headcounting. And while the God of Islam may indeed be regarded as an exacting judge who dwells on high, Allah is also described as closer than the juggler vein more intimately in touch with our innermost thoughts and feelings than is this vital blood vessel in our neck. So today we will spend some time exploring how Muslims think and feel about the God, and we will see that Allah is a very traditional kind of God, and while many UUs are like the desperate man of our story, uh, the ones who want to know if there's anyone else up there they can talk to other than a supreme being. I'll try to find lessons in Islam for our own spiritual questions. And I'm willing to lead this venture not because I am an expert on Islam, but because I feel I know enough from my days as a professor of comparative religions to explore with you. And whenever Islam has commanded our attention in dramatic headlines over the last few decades, from the Iranian Revolution to the 9-11 attacks to the war in Iraq, I have felt obliged to bone up on the latest players and have tried to give my local community at least one well-grounded and unbiased public presenter on this too little understood religion. We can begin our explorations of Islam's The God by bringing back to mind what we heard in the call to prayer played at the start of today's service. Five times a day, the Muslim hears Allahu Akbar, God is most great. Followed by the basic statement of Muslim belief, I testify there is no God but the God, Allah. I testify that Muhammad is God's apostle or prophet. Rasul. These statements contain the key components of Muslim theology, the conceptions of and attitudes toward God, and they form the model for Muslim prayers. And these Muslim prayers are offered while facing Mecca. Which way is Mecca? Well, there is an app for that. There really is, because this is not a a trivial question to Muslims as they travel the world. But Mecca is where it all began. In this ancient center of trade and commerce on the Arabian Peninsula in the early 600s of our era, a young man, Muhammad, or sometimes spelled Mohammed, started to receive what he interprets as revelations from the God, Allah. 
Arabs at that day already recognized Allah as the author of creation, but gave more attention to a variety of local tribal deities whom they worshipped in the form of special stones. The widely traveling Arab caravan traders also knew the basic tenets of Judaism from small dispersed Jewish communities that were sprinkled all around the Arabian Peninsula, and of course of Christianity as well, represented by the nearby Byzantine Empire. The messages Muhammad received over the course of about two dozen years were compiled into the Muslim holy book, the Quran, spelled Q-U-R apostrophe A-N, or K-O-R-A-N, they're the same set of scriptures. Muhammad saw this as direct revelation from God, with him only as the vehicle, the prophet, in the same way that God had used prophets before to reveal a divine book to Jews, the Torah, and Christians, the Gospels, Jesus being viewed in the Quran as merely a prophet and not as God's son. Muhammad, however, was the seal of the prophets, the last of God's messengers. And the Quran, the final and perfect rendition of the heavenly book, setting right much that the Jews and Christians had allowed to become corrupted over the centuries in their versions of Revelation. The basic message of the Quran, which Muhammad preached first in Mecca and then throughout the Arabian Peninsula, was first and foremost that God is one and unique. There is no God but the God. Or as a verse from another surah, a chapter of the Quran puts it, God is one, the eternal God, begetting not in unbegotten. None is equal to him. This statement of pure monotheism was certainly aimed at delegitimizing the polytheism among the Arabs of Muhammad's period. Those gods, he said, are not real. They must be forsworn and exclusive allegiance given to the God. But the Quran also aimed at delegitimizing the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, especially the dogma of Jesus begotten as God's son and sharing in divinity with the Father. Sound familiar? That's Unitarianism in the strict sense of our Christian forebears' anti-Trinitarian theology. And this strict monotheism flows necessarily from the Quranic understanding of God's nature. Only one in the universe can be God. That's what God means. All else is subordinate. All else is not God. The great sin, really the only sin, is idolatry. To regard something as God which is not. By this the Quran did not just mean the Arabs' worship of sacred stones, but the raising up of anything as an object of loyalty other than God. And there are so many idols that tempted then that tempt now. Wealth, beauty, personal status, friends, tribe, nation. I am personally challenged by the mono part of Islam as well as its theism. 
I do feel the psychological and moral impulse of a single center for my life as opposed to being pulled in different and competing directions. And I know the logic, the logic that drives morality, theology, and philosophy to search out the one source of all value, the single foundational principle from which all others derive, whether we name that God, nature, or even some grand unified theory. But I hesitate, even as I am drawn myself toward the one. The world often seems more complicated than that, defying unity, pushing us toward polytheism or poly-something in order to do justice to its diverse nature. For example, how many basic forces or fundamental particles are recognized in contemporary physics? Somebody, I'm sure, here will tell me. But it's more than one, isn't it? that true? Okay. Islam also insists on God's absolute transcendence. The Quran says, no human perception comprehends him. He is beyond all conceiving. So God can certainly not be depicted, drawn, carved. The biblical revulsion against graven images here reaches its apex. But Islam also forbids, or at least discourages, all forms of representational art. The quest to capture the beauty of this world in a form that would lead us to give such work of art or admiration is wrong. It's a form of idolatry. Therefore, Islamic culture turned to abstract geometric design, like the arabesque, architecture, and especially calligraphy. If you can write verses from the Quran in beautiful Arabic script, that's acceptable. The glaring, very glaring exception here is the minority Shia branch of Islam that produces lively and prominent, often mural-sized depictions lifelike of its first dozen or so perfect spiritual community leaders, their imams with a capital I, who followed Muhammad. This only adds fuel to the fire of the hatred that radical fundamentalists in the majority Sunni branches, such as those representing ISIS or Al-Qaeda, have for Shiites. Muslim theology also stresses God's role as creator, lawgiver, and lord of the world. And its main call is for humanity to turn to the God with full obedience. This is to perform the act of Islam, which is a verb meaning submission, that is submission to God. And this act makes you a Muslim from the same verb, that is, one who submits to God. The Quran provides this prayer, which is still used daily by all Muslims. Praise be to God, Lord of mankind. You do we worship, and to you we turn for help. Guide us in the straight path. The Quran over and over again warns its hearers that listening to the prophets, especially the final prophet Muhammad, is an urgent necessity. 
For God sends prophets as warnings to the people that their irreligion and injustice will not go unpunished. All souls will face a final reckoning come the day of judgment. When the heavens shall be rent asunder and the graves shall be upturned, a soul will know what it has sent forward and what it has kept back. O human, what has led you away from your generous Lord? Verily, the righteous shall be in the light, while the wicked assuredly will be in hell, where they will roast on the judgment day. This kind of literal hellfire and brimstone language, a well-known element of both Judaism and Christianity, probably leaves us liberal religionists rather cold. (laughs) Many of us are here because we heard that too often in previous times in our lives. But if our individual conscience, what we usually as liberals regard as the highest authority, be true to what your conscience tells you, If it has any real meaning, mustn't it subject each of our lives to a final judgment, a summing up of our fidelities and failures, such as our reputation, how will we be remembered by family, friends, and society, or our own ultimate self-assessment? This daunting prospect of a final judgment is ameliorated for Muslims by their devout faith in God's justice and in God's mercy. The most common adjectives applied to God in the Quran are found in the phrase that prefaces every chapter of the book, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. God, we are told in the Quran, forgives our transgressions time and time again. Our own Unitarian Universalist consciences, forged as they were in the harsh fires of 17th and 18th century Puritanism, and be quite capable of neglecting mercy, especially for ourselves. All of us try. All of us fall short. So all people, all beings, deserve compassion and mercy. From merciful and compassionate, it is but one more step to love. Love. It is not a frequently used word in the Quran, either to describe God's relationship to us or ours to God. Love lies dormant, (laughs) implicit in the orthodox form of Islam that governs the life of most Muslims. It took the extraordinary saintly mystics of the Sufi movement to mine this potential and to turn the God of Islam into an object of love and not just of reverence. And talking about the Sufi development is something I've done here already in a previous service. We generally find it easier to like the Sufi form of Islam. Well, here ends the theological exploration. Now on to the obligatory questions about the relevance to current events. Tank back up for this one. 
So does any of what I've said so far about the basic tenets of Islamic theology help explain the mass murder in one of Orlando's premier GLBTQ nightclubs of a man of recently renewed and most, say, radicalized Muslim faith? Or the murderous rampage in a truck by the man in Nice, France, whose first name was Mohammed? Does a summary of ideas about the God of Islam, Allah, tell us if we should ban Muslim immigrants or those from any region with a history of terrorism against the U.S. or any of its allies or place all mosques in America under surveillance and make their members forswear belief in Sharia, Islamic law? No. Theology alone doesn't provide a simple explanation for any of that. But a longer answer includes some observations that I feel I just can't suppress. I've got the podium, let's go to it. Let's be clear to begin with, if that's at all possible, on who it is some politicians want to ban from entering our country. The criteria appear to be so broad. I mean, an historian thinking about has there ever been a terrorism in the history of this country Ooh. against the U.S. or any of its many and shifting allies? Wow. Anybody there who's miffed enough at the U.S. to do something bad to us? Well, I think so. That a close reading of this history permits only one conclusion under their terms. We must ban all immigrants of whatever religion from whatever country. <laughs> Who knows? Could become policy. But surely, surely that is nowhere near enough, nor is supervising and testing Muslims already here. We would have to ban conversions to this alien and suspicious faith. After all, Anyone here in this room could decide to convert and become a Muslim today, any day. Most of us have converted to get to this space, so conversion is sort of in our blood. UU churches would have to be included on the do not go unwatched list. And Rick, were these microphones here and part of the plan, or are they <laughs> something? Else? No, he says no. This is, well, where did they come from? <laughs> Day listening in. But let's go back to the first question. Are any of these recorded deeds of violence by terrorists who are Muslims to be put down to Islam's attitudes about the God to whom exclusive worship is directed? Fervent belief in an all-seeing divine being who presides over your conscience now and will preside over an unavoidable judgment day later is a fact for many different brands of religion. It's a fact in history and sociology and psychology that we know can prompt prodigious human feats for good or for ill. 
So what exactly does the God of Islam tell faithful Muslims to do? That's not simple to discern. There are multiple scriptural sources for Sharia, the law, with different schools of legal thought, differing interpretations, and continuing discussions on what they mean. And here's where my expertise on Islam leads me short. It would take years to mine through those resources and decide what it is exactly they're saying. But there's differences of opinion. And there is no surah in the Quran where it says, go and kill as many Americans as you can. And the views on what constitutes a good Muslim being propounded by the few preachers buttressing the radical ideas and actions of the group calling itself ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, which we should now relabel ISISIS for the incredibly shrinking Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. <laughs> they are a couple, a couple of voices among many. But what we also know when we have conscientiously studied the history of most of the world's religions is that every religion has room to grow, develop, and adapt to the changing conditions of the world. To the wants and needs of human individuals, the firm conviction of divine intimacy that God is closer than the juggler vein holds The promise, the promise at least, of pushing people to greater understanding of one another, to greater empathy for oneself and for others. Believers know that such a God understands deeply what it means to be human. And conversely, such an intimacy can convince adherents that they know the divine, or put another way, that their own inner light is equivalent to God. They can then affirm we can guide ourselves on the path of righteousness and even strike out in new directions beyond tradition when our conscience convinces us. That, that would be a very liberal attitude. And that can happen and has been happening within the Muslim community. It's just that this attitude has begun to grow more recently than it has in Europe and its outpost. And it's present in greater strength than we outside the Muslim world know because it is often hard to see. One current example who made the news recently, you need to leave blank spaces in sermons nowadays for what's the latest that just happened. So this is about a, a week old. One current example made the news recently is the Muslim religious leader Fatullah Gulen, living now in exile in Pennsylvania, Sailorsburg, if you want to go visit. He was cited by the Turkish government for supposedly promoting the attempted coup there last week. But Gulen is said to preach a mystical form of Islam that emphasizes democracy, education, science, and interfaith dialogue. Wow, sounds promising. Like a summer thunderstorm out here in the West, the sense of intimacy with the divine, feeling it in our innermost being, or the sense of our innermost being as godly, 
can produce a lightning flash conflagration of rage and destruction, or, or a life-giving downpour of compassion and nourishment. The God of Islam has shown the power to do both. The Muslim terror's supposed last exclamation of Allahu Akbar, God is greater, might be as much a political or social or even a personal cry as it is a religious statement. And it comes from such a small number of individuals, an incredibly small percent of Islam's 1.6 billion adherents worldwide. On the other hand, the response to the Allahu Akbar of the five-time daily prayer call shows an overarching loyalty by the vast majority to the God of justice and mercy and a commitment to the peaceful, everyday order of society that such a God commands. Let us celebrate and encourage the path that leads to peace and life enhancement in ourselves and in our neighbors. This is what our world, filled with fear but bright with possibility, is calling for. So may it be peace, paz, shanti, shalom, salam. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here and would like to know more about the Unitarian Church of Los Alamos or Unitarian Universalism, please visit us on the web at www.uulosalamos.org or visit us in real space, 1738 North Sage Street in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Join us again next week.